Hello and welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm your host, Laura Cox Kaplan. Lisa Gable has been a change agent for consumer brands, health and wellness, government and nonprofits for many years. Her latest venture takes all of those experiences and deploys them to tackle the growing epidemic of life-threatening food allergies. Lisa is the CEO of the Food Research Allergy and Education Organization. In that role, she oversees important research, but she's also helping build awareness needed to keep individuals with life-threatening food allergies safe. Lisa shares important career advice today, as well as practical and timely suggestions to help make Halloween less stressful and less dangerous for kids and their families who suffer from allergies. Lisa, welcome to She Said, She Said. We are so delighted to have you. Well, thank you, Laura. I appreciate being here and sitting in your lovely home and talking to your wonderful guests. Thank you. We are delighted, delighted to have you. Let's start by talking about what is the Food Allergy Research Education Organization. A lot of folks, I suspect, unless you have been diagnosed with an allergy, may not be familiar. Sure. So the organization's acronym is actually FAIR, which is the Middle Ages word for food that you eat. And it's the result of the merger of two organizations in 2012. Basically, there was a grassroots organization that was involved with advocacy and really spending time helping out families who were first facing this challenge and wondering what it is that they could do to keep their children safe. At the same time, there was a research organization based in New York, which was starting to develop clinical networks that would enable us to study how we can mitigate risk for the disease. And so the merger of these two organizations brought those two important critical elements together and launched FAIR in 2012. And you joined the organization somewhat recently. I've actually been at the organization for a little more than four months. And so I started the summer and uh, was so thrilled when I got the phone call. What's interesting is I had actually gotten the call about this job in 2012 during the merger. And I was working on another project that has similar attributes and provided names to the headhunters and and, uh, researched the activities and really brought myself to understanding what it was that the organization FAIR did. And so when I received the call this year from another group, of headhunters as our chief medical officer, who was also the CEO, was looking at retiring. I was so excited because I knew about it, I knew how important it was, and I really wanted to help. So at FAIR, talk a bit about the makeup of your staff and some of the areas of focus for the organization. So we're really focused on two streams of work. Out of New York, we still have the research component, and I have a group of of researchers and a doctor who work together on a couple of key things. One is we have clinical networks at 31 major hospitals and universities around the United States, and that's the place where we can do clinical trials and we can also test whether or not therapies would work. Secondarily, as we've spent a lot of time uh, pulling people out of various forms of immunological research and actually creating this as a separate sector for doctors. And so we have a group that works on awards that gives doctors the ability to move into this sector and do the research. So we have research on one end, and then on the other side, we have awareness. And awareness has a few component parts. We have the education team that works in communities and makes sure that moms and dads who are 
of the newly diagnosed know where the resources are. We have a college program that helps families as they're determining whether or not a college can actually facilitate a safe environment for their families. And then we have the awareness campaign, which is really making sure that we get people to understand the complexity of the disease. What's the most common and frankly most dangerous myth associated with life-threatening allergies? I think the issue is that people don't understand that these allergies are life-threatening. For the last 10 years, I ran another foundation that was focused on obesity and health and wellness. And so I was very aware that, you know, and just watching how market trends were working and as moms wanted to be more aware of how to best feed their children, that you've had a a rise of concern and interest related to food sensitivities. Uh, People are making dietary selections on what's best for their families. However, to some degree, that's, that's really made this a murky area for other people because what people don't don't understand is that when someone has a life-threatening food allergy, they actually have to either avoid the food or if they're exposed to the food, then they have to use an EpiPen. Mm. And so they could actually uh, die in three minutes. And that is the fundamental difference is it's not a dietary choice. It's actually a matter of life and death. And so it makes it much more complex. But I think at the same time that due to our conversations about other aspects of health and wellness, there's less of an understanding. Yeah. I would imagine if you if you or you had a child in particular who was diagnosed with a life-threatening allergy or you discover that your child has a life-threatening allergy that would be a very overwhelming experience as a as a parent. How do you as an organization help parents when they receive this diagnosis? What's the what's the first sort of series of things that you should do? The first thing is to find a support group. And so we actually have a way on our website to find a support group. We also have a sister organization called MOCA, which is Mothers of Children with Food Allergies. If you want to find out what exactly you need to do to communicate to all of the world in which your child lives. Mm -hmm. So you've got the teacher, you have the church, you have your synagogue, you have your soccer team, your baseball team. And so there's a process of making sure that you make people aware that your child is allergic to this food. And you have to also teach your own children that they are allergic and they need to be very careful about that. The other is they need to start carrying their EpiPens with them. And Mm -hmm. so whether it is an auto injector made by one company or another, and there are a couple of them in the market right now, you wanna make sure that that is always with your child and learn about the disease. And, and it's a hit or miss process. When I, when I listen to families, it is very complex. Uh, there's a great deal of anxiety, both for the children as well as for the parents. And I think particularly mothers carry that anxiety because you so want to protect your child. And so having other people you can talk to, we know is critically important. Yeah, the whole psychological element for both the parent and the child, but probably more so for the parent. It is. I mean, it really creates a a high anxiety. And in fact, I'm getting ready to talk tomorrow to the Child Mind Institute, which is an institute in New York that focuses on anxiety. And this is one of the issues that they're focused on, because as you can imagine, if you if you have this fear and you always have to be careful, your child grows up very quickly. One of the things that I had not focused on until doing the research for the interview is that it's not just a matter of the initial diagnosis and putting together a strategy for dealing with it day to day, but you also have to factor in all of the various life transitions if a kid goes to camp or when a child starts college because you may or may not outgrow these allergies. Right. So talk about the support that FAIR provides in that regard as well. Sure. For 
I've had mothers tell me that it's easier, obviously, when their children are smaller because you can control their environment. We know that children are at the greatest risk between 11 and 21. At the point that they're, they have their own independence, they're making their own decisions, they're out with friends, uh, and uh, they may not carry their auto injector with them. They may not feel comfortable piping up in the middle of a conversation and letting someone know that they have an allergy because they don't want to be different and they don't want to be excluded. They are more vulnerable. And so th- that's the issue where parents really just need to sit down with their children, find the solution that's best for them, the auto injector that they're willing to carry that's going to work for them, and helping them to figure out how to navigate life. I've heard so many stories from boys in particular about dating and and how it becomes complicated because on a date, when you're a young adult, when do you tell the girl why it is that you're not eating certain foods? You don't want to come across as 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 different than anyone else that she goes on a date with. Kissing. We we have one boy who's given a speech about kissing and how it it can be, you know, it's daunting already to have your first kiss. If you have your first kiss and you're wondering if the girl had peanut butter that day, it makes it more daunting. Wow. And so I think that the the issues these kids live with and therefore finding other people. In fact, we're getting ready to have what's called Fair Con Teen Summit. This year, we've doubled our numbers. We have 700 kids and parents coming together in Washington in a few weeks. And what I've been told by people who organize the event is that when these kids can get together and talk to their friends about this, and they can hear an older a young adult talking about what they went through. So one of our board members, her son, gives a, a whole speech on dating. And then what he says is, okay, so you don't want to go to a restaurant because you don't want to have to tell the girl about it. So he goes on hikes. He goes on walks. He does plays putt-putt. He goes to a movie. Movie, whatever, even movie theaters can be a problem at some point, but he, he is very creative. And so getting those little tidbits and lifestyle issues are, are important. That's so fascinating. I never would have thought about the dating aspect of that. I mean, how, how long would a food allergen stay in someone's system so that it would be transferable from that standpoint? No one knows what causes a threshold that, that is going to basically have someone have anaphylaxis. And so you've, there that's one of the reasons it's so hard to come up with a therapy that's going to work and one of the reasons we're going to be putting money into this area because everyone has a different threshold and so what that means is in order for your doctor to find out whether or not you have a life-threatening food allergy you go through something called the food challenge Mm -hmm. and essentially what happens is you take a young child who's been told never to eat that food because it would kill them and it's very dangerous you put them in a doctor's office and you keep feeding them the food until they have some type of of reaction each person is different and therefore it's always a cause for concern which is one reason why you hear a lot about airplanes you know food allergic parents they they like to get onto the plane early and they like to wipe down the airplane because they don't know if there's that tactile element that's left from a previous passenger I, i can't imagine the stress involved in taking a child in and going through that kind of therapy to sort of trigger a reaction it's a huge amount of stress. And, and, and when we talk to the parents who who do this, you realize these kids are heroes because this disease, when I was growing up, I'm in my 50s, when I was growing up, you never knew anybody with food allergy. But the degrees, disease has increased since 1997 by 50%. So the, the kids who are 21 and under 
are the first kids to have this disease. Mm-hmm. There is a complexity to it, and people have to figure out how to live their life with it. And some people do grow out of it, but a lot of people don't. I have a board member who has a peanut allergy. He's in his late 40s, early 50s. And we asked him the other day, he was the CEO of a major technology company subsidiary and traveled all over the world. We said, how many anaphylactic shocks have you gone into as an adult? And he said, 25 to 30. Wow. And he carries his he carries his auto injector with him, and uh, and you know he is always very careful and cautious. He carries a card in different languages so that when he goes into a country, people can control it, but at the same time they don't want to have the risk. Yeah, a lot of planning and preparation. There is a lot of planning and preparation. So, is there a growing consensus around why this huge spike? Because like you, I never knew a child growing up who had a life-threatening allergy. Folks had mild allergies, more environmental type stuff, but nothing related to food that I can recall. Is there a consensus around why we're seeing this big uptick? There's no consensus. And in fact, we have a new board member, Dr. Christine Olson, who helped start a group called FOSSI, which is part of the Broad Institute in Boston. And it works with Mass General and Harvard and some of the top schools in the country. And they're actually trying to figure out why this has happened. There are different hypotheses, but no one's actually sure whether or not they're accurate. And so uh, some of the conversation has been about the cleanliness of our environments and, and the fact that you know, due to the advancement of cleaning products and other types of things, we do leave in more clean environments. Uh, there's been commentary related to in some research about uh, whether or not it was abstinence by the mother in eating the top eight allergens during pregnancy, because a lot of moms in the late 90s, early 2000s were told, don't eat these foods when you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. Did that actually cause a greater sensitivity uh, from the fact that we didn't feed children these foods? We do know this for sure. We or something called the LEAP study, and then there's the LEAP on study and the EAT study. Essentially, what the study tested is that if you fed uh, peanuts to young children at a young age, you could actually desensitize them to risk, or you'd at least mitigate uh, the risk that happened. Interesting. That's, I mean, it's so fascinating to think about. So you've mentioned several times the EpiPen, how critical that is for someone with a life-threatening allergy. The availability of those, there's been a lot of news reported on lack of availability and also costs associated with it as well. Talk a bit about what's happening in that regard. Obviously, for someone with a life-threatening allergy, the EpiPen, I would assume, is quite critical. It is. And one thing to know is that uh, the EpiPen itself brand was the only thing on the market for a period of time. The good news is there are actually generic brands currently coming into market, as well as a competitive brand called AviQ, which is made by a company called Kaleo. And so there are a couple of issues here. One is that you have uh, one brand that has had a shortage, and they are in the process of trying to fix that shortage. Unfortunately, the shortage came about at two critical time periods. One was the beginning of summer, before kids went off to summer camp, and the second was back to school. Because of the way the pharmaceutical uh, reimbursement process works, the ability to get insurance coverage for the new products that are on the market is what you're talking about. And so one of our partners has actually framed it up very well. He said, you know, we actually don't have a shortage issue. We have an insurance issue. So what FAIR has done is a couple of things. We've been actually running a public relations campaign with a a news release that was an audio news release to let parents know what to do. Uh, One is that we have a survey that's tracking whether or not people are having problems so we can let the FDA know where the 
problems are. Secondly, always ask your doctor for an alternative product prescription. Know that some of the new brands in the market are actually doing deals uh, in order to accommodate families. And so knowing that they're not covered by insurance, they're giving great discounts and, and actually in some cases a zero cost because they know it's important for the family to have it. And, and so there are a couple of, of different tasks you can take, but we have heard stories of families traveling at least 90 miles to go and try and find an auto injector for their children. Wow, that's really incredible. So let's sort of break down some more basic questions, at least basic, I think, from my standpoint, because I'm not an expert on this topic. I don't know very much about it at all, which is why having you here, I think, is so important, because many of our listeners are moms of young children um, who... If their child has a life-threatening allergy, they're probably very up to speed, I would think. But for everyone else, it's incredibly helpful. I imagine that Halloween is yet another big stressor for parents if you have a child who has a life-threatening allergy. How do you, how do you help folks, not so much the parents, but other people navigate and be aware of the concerns related to life-threatening allergies? So FAIR started a program called Teal Pumpkin. <clears throat> And by putting a teal pumpkin on your porch, what it signals to uh, families with kids is that you are actually providing non-food treats to a child. And really one of the most critical things about this issue is exclusion, right? This is the kid that's told at a school, you have to go sit at the peanut-free table. And that doesn't feel good. And as you can imagine, Halloween is one of the most fun kid activities that we have. And so by putting a teal pumpkin on your porch and having extra non-food based treats that you can feed to a child, then that makes them feel completely included. And so it's a program that FAIR started. It start, it's been around for about five years. It's gained a lot of attention. And we actually have a map on our website. It's foodallergy.org where you can go and see where the neighborhoods are, where, where people are aware of this. But this year we did something different. Now that we've seen it become sticky, we made a decision that we want the teal pumpkin to be as pervasive as the orange plastic pumpkin. And so essentially we have gone to all all the other uh, food allergy groups. We've gone to the celiacs groups. We've gone to as many organizations as we can. And we said, we want everybody to be involved in this because we want to reach 330 million Americans. It's not good enough for us to talk about the 15 million who have the disease. We really need everybody's help in mitigating risk and making sure these kids feel safe and included. And so we've thrown the doors open. And now organizations across America have joined us in promoting this with all of their, with all their social media, with their various um, consumers and relationships that they have. And so we're just pretty excited about it. So give us a few practical suggestions for what we might stock for trick-or-treaters with a life-threatening allergy. If we, we put out our teal pumpkin, what do, what do we have on hand? What's the best sort of best suggestions? So, you know, we have a lot of partners from Michael's to CBS. Walmart's doing a program. Really all of the Amazon, you can find activities there. It, go to a dollar store and just get little tiny balls, get little, you know, uh, whistles, get those old-fashioned things that our parents used to give us when we were growing up. Uh, so there are a lot of treats. There are little lighted, flashy things that you can get. And, and so just really think about it. It doesn't have to be expensive. These are children. They just want to have fun. And so anything that you might give uh, in a gift bag when your child has a, a birthday party, collect all of that stuff. I know that Jim and I have, he's a Spider-Man person. And so I have this whole bin of Spider-Man stuff from birthday parties, you know, throughout the years. And I just keep it. Use, use old things. They're kids. They'll love it. 
Yeah, our friends at the Oriental Trading Company who, who keep us in various holiday supplies, pencils and things like that. It sounds like those would be great ideas for, for stocking in your uh, various Halloween candy and things like that. They would be. And so just know, you know, just just think outside the box. Now, one thing I should also say, because it is important, is that we have um, some of our sponsors have created foods that are free of the top eight allergens. And so there are eight allergens that are the dominant allergens, although we're trying to add sesame because sesame is grown as one of those. So there are actually nine. Um, But there's a company called Halen Brands that makes a product called Owen. And we have Enjoy Life, which is owned by Mondelez. And both of those companies actually now have products that can be eaten uh, by kids who have any of the top eight allergies. Um, and therefore, that gives them, again, an ability to participate fully in the entire Halloween process by making sure that, you know, they too get special treats. And these, these I've, I've tasted everything. I love taste testing. And I have to say they're <laughs> really good. So go look for Enjoy Life and go look for Owen. Okay, those are great suggestions. So let's talk about the symptoms of anaphylaxic. If you, you know, you have a child or you're at a dinner party, somebody starts going into anaphylaxic. How do, how do you know? What are you looking for so that you can be more aware? I mean, different people exhibit it in different ways. And so somebody can have problems breathing. Somebody might start breaking out in hives. Other people have described it as their child's face went incredibly red. One person mentioned that their kid's eyes went red. It has different reactions for different people. Uh, but what you should ask people, especially if you're doing a slumber party, always ask if anybody has a has an allergy. Uh, moms, know, make sure you know where that epi auto injector is in somebody's bag that you've got them laid out. In fact, I talked to one mom. She says, we have enough kids in our friend group. We just collect all the auto injectors. We've got them sitting there. If anybody starts to have a problem, you, you give them the, the medicine and you immediately call 911. Mm-hmm. What the medicine does is it mitigates the risk. In some cases, it will take two shots. It doesn't always work work with just one and that's why when you receive the product you'll get it in a two pack mm-hmm. but you want to call 911 immediately because they should go to the emergency room because for each child uh, some children actually have their airways close up and that can cause long-term consequences that that don't go away is that how you know if you use one versus two EpiPens? If they should if have an immediate reaction to it. To yeah. it, okay. So, so you would know immediately. You would, and but at the same time, that's one reason we want to get all, all the training. We have different training videos and things to let people know what they need to do. And in fact, some of our moms, we're going to be giving them the ability to go out and train the friend groups. And <clears throat> one of our mothers actually trains all of her son's thirteen-year-old friends, and they do a whole test case, and she has a training away uh, so that everybody's prepared if anything happens to their child what it is they need to do yeah are the training videos and courses and things like that are they available on the website or how do folks get access to them they're available on the website at foodallergy.org and so you can just go on the website and pull up some of our videos that's great you've got a lot of information that is much of it's really basic for someone like me who's just trying to get a little smarter on the topic so it really is incredibly well done Lisa, talk about the difference between a food allergy and a food intolerance. And is there any sort of research that shows that a food intolerance could become a life-threatening food allergy? 
again, and I know I keep saying it, this is such a murky field. Mm. It really affects people in very different ways. But a food intolerance, uh, you hear a lot about people who have a dairy intolerance. And so they might get an upset stomach or they may feel not quite right. Uh, Some people talk about getting an itchy throat. Uh, But the reality is this is extremely different. This is something where someone has anaphylaxis. And so it does bring forward this immediate reaction. And that's the differential between the two. Yeah. You know, the scariest part of this, obviously, is that a person could die. How how common are deaths from anaphylaxis? Families, a- anaphylaxis. Yeah, families focus on, um, they basically focus on, on not consuming the foods, not being exposed to the foods, and having their auto-injector nearby. And so you are correct that you don't hear about <clears throat> a lot of, of deaths due to this uh, because avoidance is so baked into the way that these people live their lives. At the same time, we have had some very sad occasions. We had uh, a little boy by the name of Elijah who was going to school in New York. He was three years old. The mother did everything she could do. She, she told the teachers, she told the school, everybody knew that he had a dairy allergy and yet someone gave him a cheese sandwich. And, and he passed away and and the mother came in and she she uh, gave him the immediate medicine took him to the emergency room but the reality is people really need to listen if someone says that they have an allergy and think about what dairy is one of the ones that is hardest to remember because it's in a lot of baked products and mm. snacks that people actually don't understand that it's in and so The most important thing is if anybody enters your house or if your friend has a friend, read the food labels. The the labels are on there. They clearly state what the ingredients are, and that's where you have to be very careful. Uh, There was an inquest uh, that recently uh, finalized in the UK about a situation two years ago where a young girl uh, purchased a sandwich. Uh, The sandwich did not disclose that it had one of the allergens in it. Uh, She got on the airplane to eat her sandwich uh, mid-flight in Europe, and, and she passed away. And there's a whole series of things that went wrong with that. Uh, there was a young uh, gentleman who had just gotten his medical degree. He was trying to help her. But the reality is it was due to the fact that it wasn't disclosed on the food label. Mm. And so the other thing to always do is if you're with someone, make sure you ask hard questions at the restaurant or at the quick serve and dig in a little bit more because it's not always on there, but it should be. Mm-hmm. FAIR has made some great progress in terms of policy changes as it relates to food labeling. Talk a little bit about that as well. Well, FAIR is is the reason why you do have food labeling right now. I mean, a lot of FAIR and, and the various organizations that have, have been in this space were the ones who lobbied to get food labeling. Uh, one of the biggest issues that we're working on in a state-by-state business is what we call permissive law, which is a law that allows you as a restaurant or some type of entity to keep an auto-injector and so that if any of your customers start to have an experience experience that you don't have the fear of litigation if you help them at their moment of risk. And so there are some laws uh, that we're trying to get passed in states that would ensure that EMTs and, and you know police officers, anyone who's a first responder, would have an auto injector. Because what we've discovered when you go back and look at situations where uh, people have passed away, it is because somebody didn't have it when the service was provided or the EMT actually didn't know what they were looking for. Like they actually weren't familiar enough with with what was going on with the patient. 
So Lisa, let's transition and talk a bit more about you and your career. You have had amazing career experiences across, as I said at the beginning, government, corporate, and the nonprofit sector. You've worked in four different presidential administrations. You've worked for very innovative companies. You've done some really interesting things. Why FAIR? Why this particular cause? What was it that attracted you to this particular role? I've been very fortunate in that I have been part of moments of history both from a business standpoint and a political standpoint, where I've been at these critical inflection points. And so as I tell people, I'm old enough that I was actually at the White House when Gorbachev came to meet with Reagan. Biggest inflection point there is, the fall of of the Soviet empire. I then went and worked for Intel Corporation that makes the computer chips in your computer when it was a billion dollar company. Mm. And then I worked with the auto industry when, when the hybrid cars took off. And so I've had this opportunity to be both on the policy side during some really major changes in U.S. history simultaneously with working in companies when they were going through meeting new needs for the consumer. And I then worked with the food and beverage company when we actually changed the recipe of 35% of the food Americans eat in the United States that's sold in the U.S. by taking out sugars and fats. Mm. So when I got the phone call from FAIR, I was looking for a moment in my life. I'm, I'm at this point where I've gotten to do these, these really wonderful things, and I wanted something that brought all the pieces together. And so what's nice about FAIR is that there are incredible innovations happening in the marketplace. We are right at the cusp of things happening in the pharmaceutical space, as well as the consumer product goods space that could really help these families. Secondarily, it's about food. And so for the last 10 years, I've been dealing with the health and wellness issues. And what I knew is that I have partnerships across America with boys and girls clubs and Girl Scouts and registered dietitians. And those are the same people that could help the people that are impacted by food allergies. And then from a policy standpoint, there's there's this recognition that this is an issue that we need to deal with. And we need to, again, these good Samaritan laws, these permissive laws, how do we how do we make sure that everybody can keep people safe and included? And so I guess the last piece of it was I sat during that interview and I absolutely fell in love with the board. Mm-hmm. I was sitting there meeting with these people and I realized I can be friends with these people and we can do a lot of good together. So it's an ability for me to bring together all the pieces of my life and really try to do something that's important to 15 million people and more. Yeah. How do you define success for you? Not just for the organization, I'm interested in in that piece too, but for you, Lisa, how do you define success? I like to make change. And, And I tell people that even when I was in high school, I didn't make one cheerleading squad I wanted to make, and so I started my own. And so for me, and and then we ended up winning the prize, and so we're very excited about that. that. But um, I just like to make change. And where, where I can't be successful is if I'm in an organization that doesn't want to keep moving forward and doesn't want to make really significant changes. And that's that has its advantages and disadvantages. I've gone into interviews and people have said, oh, no, 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 no. You know, she's a racehorse. We do not want to make that much change. And the good news is I know that enough about myself that I know happiness for me is I'm very quantitatively driven. Uh, it's one reason I did well in Silicon Valley is everything's about the numbers and and Therefore, I try to identify those opportunities where I can take my skill set and I can literally have quantifiable change that impacts people's lives. And that's been my driving force since I was a very young person. 
You've been through a number of career transitions, uh, transitioning from one big job to another big job, and you've done that repeatedly. For many people, it's a struggle to know when to when to leave, and for women in particular, this can be a bit challenging, sort of knowing when the time is right. How do you know? How have you known when it was time to transition? I mean, in some cases, I assume a job sunsets with an administration, but in other cases, you actually have to make a conscious decision that, okay, I've done what I came to do. There are two answers to that question. When I was single and into my 30s, before we adopted our daughter and I got married, they actually got married and then adopted my daughter. Um, I was on that trajectory of just moving from, you know, moving forward. It was always about the next opportunity, the next job, the next appointment that I received. And then we actually had something happen, which is that my my husband was diagnosed with a very unusual set of diseases. And, um, and all of a sudden, I had to, I'd been climbing up the ladder, and all of a sudden I had to start zigzagging. What I have zigzagging in terms of dialing back, zigzagging and taking time off yeah. and actually focusing on either my child or my husband's disease. But because I am who I am, I never completely stop. And so, uh, one of the stories is that when my husband was most sick and he was in Stanford Hospital for a period of time and my daughter was young. I couldn't just sit in the hospital and not do anything. And so that's when I started doing political fundraising. So I said, okay, fine, I've got another quantitative goal. I have to be in this hospital, but I'm sitting here for hours. And so I started dialing for dollars. And I just sit there and I just kept raising money for the political (laughs) campaign that I was interested in. And as a result of that, uh, the benefit of how long he was in the hospital is I ended up raising a whole lot of money for the the candidate in question. Um, But you have to... I've utilized uh, boards and commissions, both corporate and not-for-profit boards, as a way to keep myself engaged and active when I couldn't work full-time. And so I've come in and out of the workforce itself. And then when I've accepted jobs, knowing that uh, we had this issue in our life where we never actually knew when we'd have to do another pivot in order to accommodate what happened with the disease, I've ended up taking jobs that were complete turnarounds so that I could go in, run as fast as I could, turn something around, make sure that it was in a place that if I had to personally pull back from it, I was literally handing it over to someone Mm -hmm. and handing it up all wrapped up, all fixed in a bow. And that's what it was. Yeah. How about perspective on setback and failure? We talk a lot about that on this podcast and how different people recover from something that really just kicks you in the pants. People are people, and you're going to meet great people during your career, and you're going to meet some not very nice people in your career. And, you know, when you're in politics or uh, working with large corporations, it can be highly political. And I think what you have to do is assess whether or not it is the place that's going to be the best place for you to be. Uh, You don't want to job hop, but at the same time, if you've had a consistent career that's always moved forward and you find yourself in a situation that isn't the place you need to be because of the people you're working with or it's not the right environment or perhaps you've been offered a job that doesn't quite pan out the way that it was described to you it's actually okay to leave and you can do that once everybody gets a pass everybody gets a redo uh you want to choose it wisely you don't want to do you know you always have to work through the hard times and there's growth from working through the hard times so you never want to stop back 
step back to the point that you stop growing and you and you avoid things but at the same time there may be that time in your career where you face a situation and you're old enough you're experienced enough and you know this is not going to do it for me I need to go someplace else and I think part of it I mentor a lot of a lot of people a lot of women and one of the things I discovered with a young woman I was talking to recently is she has ended up job hopping quite a bit recently. And I said, let's go back to when you were happy. You were in this category for a period of time. Here's how your skill set worked in that period of time. And then you thought for growth, you should try all these other avenues. And the reality is, it's not your skill set. Let's, let's go back to the period of time mm-hmm. where you can really capitalize on the thing that is most unique to you as a contributor. So it's a journey. Yeah, it is. And one of the challenges can be not over-personalizing an experience that doesn't work out, right? Whether it's a failure or not, but it's stopping yourself from really taking that experience personally as opposed to saying, you know what, tried it, didn't work, got to move on. Yeah, and I started blogging. I realized that I've had so many unique experiences that I started writing about it. And I started writing a lot during the last 10 years, and it's been very uh, heartwarming to me uh, that when I recently, I was on a trip a couple of years ago at a big industry conference, and I got seated at a table, and a woman goes, oh my God, you wrote X article. And I have to tell you, I printed it out, I made everybody on my staff read it, and it was so heartfelt about the thing we were dealing with, and you were so transparently honest about it, that we loved it. What people have to realize is when you say don't take it personally is also recognize everybody's gone through it. Mm -hmm. Everybody has faced challenges. And so to the degree that you own your challenges and you're honest about them and you mentor other people through your challenges, that's wonderful. We should all be able to help somebody else through paths that we had to travel ourselves. We ask every person who comes on the podcast for their best piece of advice or life hack. It could be a mantra. It could be that piece of advice that you would tell your younger self or something that you might tell your daughter who's currently in college. What is yours? Mine is always help other people up the ladder. Make everything a team effort as you are young, recognizing that you are pulling together your team. Now that I've been in the workforce for over 30 some odd years, my team is huge and I utilize my team all the time and I make sure they all meet each other. And so think about this, always help other people up the political, the social, the educational, the business ladder of success, and you will have a team that will help you be successful for the rest of your life. That's great. Lisa, thank you so much for being here. It was a real pleasure. Well, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. I learned a lot, and I hope our audience did as well. To learn more about Lisa and her work at the Food Allergy Research and Education Organization, you can visit our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There you'll find links to FAIR, as well as additional notes from today's conversation. You can also follow the podcast on social media, via Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And we have also just launched a newsletter where we'll share our latest episodes as well as news and information directly to your inbox. So please, please sign up. It's a great way to access the podcast. And of course, if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a review. We'd love to have that. It's a big, big help to help us move up the charts on iTunes. 
As always, thanks so much for listening.